Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello. This is the mind detectives calling that boy they call the riot. Anyway, if you see him, tell him hi. Telling you, bro. What's been happening, bro? Uh, not too much. Still hitting more Peggy O's. Hey everybody, welcome back to Riff Raff. Thanks so much for tuning in. Greetings from Paris, France. Day off here. And um, it's been a fun European tour. Daryl Hall, John Oates. Uh, second time I've been to Europe this year. Um, it's really nice. Always great. And I thought I'd take this day off to put the final touches on this episode of Riff Raff for you. So uh, look, if you haven't already done so, please... Give me a good review on iTunes for Riff Raff. A lot of people have done that. It's really great. Leave a nice comment. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Facebook, Shane Terrio Music, Shane Terrio Guitar on Instagram. Love hearing from all you guys. I'm not going to run my mouth a lot on the intro this time, so let's just get to today's guest. <laughs> My guest today is Mr. Wayne Krantz. Wayne's one of my favorite guitar players, favorite musicians. I go check him out every time I get the chance when I'm in, up in New York. And um, it's always inspiring. And I've had a lot of requests. You guys hit me up all the time on email with requests for Riff Raff. And uh, Wayne has always been there at the top of the list, so here we go. I made it happen. Um, this is really a great interview. I mean, it was—I really 
loved sitting and playing with Wayne. He was so nice to come over. He actually lives down the street from my apartment in Manhattan, so it worked out great. I mean, you know, Wayne is uh, one of the more original guitar players out there on the scene now. He's been at it shortly after moving to uh, New York in 1987. He talks about how he made a decision which impacted his music and style to this day, and that was to completely abandon any pre preconceived licks, cliches, and he totally reinvented himself. I mean, really an inspiring thing and a challenging thing because he was scraping for a while before he... You know, he came into his own, and people know him for his original voice now. It's a real path of an artist. Uh, he's got a highly original approach to the instrument. I love the way he takes chances. He trusts his ideas and goes with them. I mean, he's a true improviser. So in this interview, we talk about you know, Steely Dan, um, the importance of time, centering the note, challenges and rewards of leading an original project in New York. Wayne also has... Uh, many solo records out he's working on a new one now that he talks about I mean there's the classic uh, two drink minimum there's a uh, Howie 61 good piranha bad piranha which I used on this intro I mean I love all his stuff and it's all different he has a new revision to his book the An improvisers OS version 2 which you guys all need to check out Go to WayneKrantz.com. He's got all his info there. And uh, here we go. Wayne, like I said, he was nice enough to come over, walk down the street, walks in, and we start playing. I was playing like some little groove, and Wayne just jumped in. And, man, it sounds like a tune all of a sudden when Wayne starts playing. So um, hope you enjoy it. Thanks for listening. Where's, where was one on that? Uh, three, four, one.
great time for you, man. Oh, thanks. Coming over, man. Make you walk down the street here. I know it's big, it took seven minutes to get here, so I'm I exhausted. Gonna, I almost called you again because I heard the jackhammer this morning. I mean, we're in New York are they likely City to folks, start so. up? Huh? Are they likely to start up? Anymore? I don't think so. I was. Oh, okay. I almost went across the street and asked them, but I'm sure they wouldn't. Just tell me you're doing a podcast. I'm sure they'd be happy yeah, to stop. Could you guys hold it down? Yeah. Somebody told me a story once that they used to live in New York in the '80s and they were working like this and. Um, uh, um, Rodney Dangerfield came down in a row and was asking, how long have you working here? That's great. <laughs> but uh, I don't think I would have gotten the same reaction had Probably I Probably not. That. Anyway. Depending on the robe. Well, look, um, you know, I was telling you when you walked in, all, you know, my little uh, Labor of Love podcast here, the listeners I have now, I've gotten so many people that have hit me up. If you can get Wayne Krantz, Wayne That's Krantz. So you're on my, you know, top I'm, of the list. So. I'm glad. Hell yeah. And all the times I go down the 55 bar and hear you, man, it's always great. It's always different. Is that cool? Is the difference cool? Sometimes I worry about it. I mean, that's the way I like it, but I, I you know, I know people also like not different sometimes. You know, really? they like, yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's a weird, I always think about this, you know, it's like just to try to you know, make the people happy. And so I know that there are certain, people like it when, you know, you were talking about Jeff Beck before. It's like, they like it when they can go hear Jeff and Jeff does Jeff. You know, they know what that is. They've listened to it. They love it. And um, and what we do is, so, in a way, I mean, it's always us, you know. it's always It always sounds like me, I guess. I mean, I would think. Absolutely. I, I can't help it, yeah. you know. But, uh but it might not always be exactly the same angle of it, you know, and, and sometimes I wonder about that, like do people, whether they're disappointed, because sometimes, like, it, and I kind of heard it in your voice too when you said it, it's different all the time, 
it's kind of there's a little bit like you you can kind of go either way with it like no, it's cool no, no. in one way i mean it as a compliment i mean the way oh, i hear cool. it the, the way i hear it and the way i would take that most people that i hear talk about you after because everybody's like wow i went here weighing last night and this and that i hear it as it's always you like you said jeff sounds like jeff i think wayne always sounds like wayne but the thing that makes it interesting is, and maybe it's out of necessity being in New York, you have this revolving cast of rhythm section, right. but they frame you, uh-huh. but you're always the centerpiece. I mean, it, it's always fresh. That's what I mean. You know, it's good. Well, that's cool. That's great. Yeah. But I mean, it's just, you know, there's so much improvising in it. Almost all of it is improvised. So more than, than usual, um, it really matters who's playing, sure, like, because they're given a third of it, each of them, you know. And the, and I get that the, I I feel that the drums drive it a lot too, depending totally. on who's driving the thing. Yeah, but you're Absolutely. man in the show for sure. I mean, huh. it's, uh, and you know, I think last time I I went down there a month or so ago, we were talking at the, just watching everybody bob their heads in unison. You mm-hmm. know, all these everybody loves the kids come out and hear you. Mm-hmm. And, Every, I think people tend to hear things in one or two bar phrases now. Maybe that's what we were talking about that night. And your music, as complex as it can get, and it appeals to you know guitar players and dance musicians, it also appeals to people who just want to groove. On I it. hope so. That's yeah. the foundation. Yeah. Absolutely. Without that, it's... The rhythmic thing is yeah. so strong. Yeah, and the short phrases are definitely what, where it's at with that stuff. It's, I mean, that's how I... That's that's really how I play. I mean, that's how I think when I'm playing. I'm always kind of thinking in terms of the like two and four bar phrases, and and you know expanding that lots too. But but that's really the foundation of it. It's just the shorter phrase thing, as opposed to the jazz thing, which tends to be more long phrase stuff, right. you know, and con- connecting phrases and stuff like that. So it's built it's built in a different way that really lends itself more to pocket stuff. Let's see. There's a lot of stuff I want to ask you. Great. Um, first time I ever heard you on a recording was, I think it was a Laney Stern record. You know which one? I know the tune was called Phoenix. Yeah, that's, I think that might be my song. Might it, be one of my tunes. Yeah. That's probably on Closer to the Light. That sounds right. It's called. Yeah. I think that was the one with, uh, I believe, that was the one that Dave Sanborn played a solo on. Oh, wow. I have, I have a cool story about that if you're interested. Yeah, absolutely. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah, he did an overdub on the thing. And I think, as I think about it, I'm thinking it may have been the first time I ever saw a cell phone in my life. And his cell phone that he had in the studio, he kind of sheepishly brought it out. It was like walkie-talkie size. It was like a brick. It really was. It was giant. <laughs> but, you know, it was like one of those military field phones. Maybe like a little smaller. Um, but it was just the most amazing thing. That was a telephone that somebody was carrying around. You know, it was just beyond belief. But even more uh, moving and memorable and important was the fact that um, as I was watching him do this overdub, which I'd never seen him do, uh, just a solo on a track, you know, at the time he was, I can't remember when, that was probably in the 90s somewhere, he, like, anything related to funk in terms of saxophone was pretty much a direct cop of him like everybody looked to him for instruction about how to be funky with a saxophone and um, I remember in fact Michael Brecker told me once that hell for him was following Sanborn on a funk tune wow Uh, like he was really and you know probably still is I mean for all I know the man for that and so everybody was imitating him everybody you know stood like he stood and kind of angled their mouths to the mouthpiece like he does and 
and then the, the signature lick stuff. But as I listened to him do this overdub, I, uh, I realized that all anybody were, was getting of him were just these really superficial little kind of idiosyncrasies of his playing. That was really the only part of it that anybody is capable of imitating. Because the real thing that he does, the organic thing, is much rawer and much less kind of polished and casual and it's quite earthy and organic and really personal and kind of dark actually like and it became apparent that that was really the foundation of what he was but none of that stuff is very easily copped and so that got me thinking like about like what people imitate in other people <clears throat> and i suspect I mean, I've thought a little bit about it since then. I suspect it's usually those superficial things because the real deep thing that anybody has is, you know, probably more or less uncopable. Just like you can't really cop the personality of a person, you know, you right. can kind of get the, the little jokes they tell, you know, but sure. that's about it. I had a similar uh, vibe once watching Donald Fagan and Walter Becker recording the studio, like just the two of them was it on a recording session and and they were just the two of them in the studio and they were just kind of jamming the two of them were just playing and completely casually like just not even a tune I don't think and uh, I was listening to it and I was just struck that it sounded exactly like Steely Dan like them just jamming just the core sounds yeah. like the record that and, and at that time like everybody was trying to imitate I want to play like the guys on the Dan records you know so everybody's like working their asses off to try to cop this thing that these guys do falling out of bed they can't help but sound like that you know that they're not trying to sound that way they are that way right. you know right. it's such a deep thing and and it's really i think we all we all have that you know we all have our thing this is in, it's interesting you know that yeah. that bit of it cuz so much of like learning how to play is kind of an imitative process you know it's, it's like People like somebody, so they want to sound like that person. And what that means and where that leads them and and to what degree it's possible. I remember when I was a kid, the first time I heard George Benson play on record, I immediately tried to figure it out, because when you're a kid, that's what you do. You figure out every single thing you hear that you like. And and I was shocked that when I finally, and this is on an LP, right? So you're kind of like scratching the record to smithereens as you're trying to learn this fast stuff. and. Um, and I remember realizing, like, once I got it, once I got the notes, I, it felt like there was nothing there. It's like it doesn't sound like anything when I play these notes. But when he plays the notes, it blows my mind. Mm. And that was like my little lesson about it ain't the notes, kid. You There's know? more than the notes. Yeah. 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 Definitely. I think Alan Holdsworth, I had read somewhere where he said, why would why would a grown man want to imitate another man's stuff? Actually, <laughs> I said that myself in an interview. Maybe it's once. you. Yeah, I, you said the grown man yeah. part. Well, that's the ego part of it.
topic that I've, I've been dying to ask you about because I've I've tried to actually find podcasts. Yeah, I think you've only done one. I haven't seen hardly any interviews, but there I had a long interview a long time ago with you where you talked about just shedding all preconceived, like all your bebop cliches. And like back in the, I don't know when that would have been, mm -hmm. but you made, you know, you made a, a very conscious decision to shed everything and start from zero and like, you know, just become, not become original, but focus more on what I had personally. Your personal sound. Yeah. Just making up. No, that's I mean, right. Could you talk a little bit about how it sure. came to be? Sure. And sure. was that pre-Steely Dan or post-Steely Oh, yeah. Dan? I was pre. Yeah. That was a long time ago. That's when I first... Well, it was probably just before I moved to New York. It was when I was living in Boston. But it really kind of became kind of an extreme experience when I moved here and made a decision... Because it, it, part of it was making the decision that I wasn't going to be a jazz player. Like, because I went to Berkeley and that was all about studying jazz and... And when I got out of Berkeley, I studied with this guy, Charlie Vinakis, this fantastic jazz teacher from Boston, uh, for a year. And, you know, was really shedding that stuff and still kind of thinking of standards as being like a thing that I should practice, uh, just if I wanted to be good. And, um, and when I came to New York and realized if I wanted to compete with the cats here, you know, say there's like, oh, at any given moment in New York City, there's maybe like maybe like seven or eight, maybe even ten guys playing jazz that are phenomenal, right. you know, that are just like the best in the country probably. I mean, maybe not, but some of the best probably, in the country that yeah. move here, you know, that, that, that kind of converge on New York City to try to play jazz. So I realized that to compete with those guys, I'd have to really devote myself to, to playing the, that music. And, um, and I just, I didn't, it was kind of like, yeah, I mean, now it's really close and irritating, right? Oh, Here's no, where the no, no, for the audience, it. I mean, like the ch no, gum chewing like, would be great at this like point. It's like hard now. <laughs> <Right>? no, exactly. <laughs> uh, I'll, I'll get it up. You know, it's it just it. Uh, I realized my heart wasn't in that, and you, and you can't like if you're in New York, you can't just play a little jazz on the weekend. You know what I mean? It's not that kind of scene. You're all, you got to be all in. Yeah, like like with anything, whatever it is you do here. So. Um, so I made that decision, and then, and then this kind of conscious—it's—it's it's kind of—I don't want to be boring with it, but it's kind of this sort of a long answer to the thing. Basically, it's like the, the musicians that we all like, all of us. I'm sure anybody listening to this, the musicians we care about the most, are people that sound like themselves. There's people that have figured out how to personalize what they do, even if it's a straight idiom player, even talking about a rock and roll guitar player or whatever. There's some, you know, the people that we like the most are the people that figured out how to personalize within their context to the point where they're identifiable and they offer something that you really can't get anyplace else because it's a function of them. And, uh, and you know, if, you're just, if you just want to be a great jazz player, it's, it's like an, it's an abstraction, really. It's like... Really, what like the inspiration is like these cats? If they're if they're jazz people, talking about George, like George is one of my first jazz inspirations, and Joe Pass, John McLaughlin. Let's say those three guys. It's like I I realized like almost from the beginning that I was going to be wasting my time trying to imitate those guys. You know, you learn from them, you observe, maybe you cop a thing here or there just to see what it's like to run through the field with their shoes on and all that, but. 
But I realized my value was not going to be being a, a stylist. It wasn't going to be that. It wasn't going to be being a jazz stylist or a, an imitator. It's like a spectrum of stuff. Everybody's necessary to be to make the music work in this world. There's a yeah. there's an intense need for stylists. There's a need for people who sound like other people. And there's a need for people that try to carve out something more personal. That's all it's all included in the spectrum and and just like as I became more and more in touch with the fact that my place in that spectrum was going to be more on the personal side. Uh that's when I kind of got intentional with how do I do it? How do I how do I tap into that thing as opposed to just trying to cop Sco's latest record or whatever? Right. And um and so that began that process that I think you're asking about, just like the kind of let me just get rid of of all the stuff I'm playing now that's not mine and which was most of it. And uh, you know, because I was into this kind of post bop long sixteenth note, eighth, sixteenth note line playing and stuff. Um, it was still probably somewhat personal at the time, but just conceptually it wasn't creative particularly. It was it was derivative. So to get rid of that stuff and, and see what was left. And then whatever's left, I tried to develop that. And that kind of led me towards the rhythm thing because that turned out to be something that was personal. And, uh, and you know, it became, it was kind of a painful process because at least in my case, I really couldn't play for a while. Because yeah, like once you give that up, there's nothing. Yeah. There must have been a point of no return where yeah. you're like, oh shit, now Kinda. I don't really remember some of this other yeah, stuff. Yeah, or just yeah. like you've made a commitment not to go there anymore. Yeah, eventually it turns into not remembering. But I mean, there is a part where you could kind of go back. You know, you could keep doing those kinds of gigs. And I wanted to ask about that, yeah. gigs. Like, <laughs> what you know, gigs? Working guitarist in New York and then you're shedding yeah. all these, these right. shops that you might need to, you know, That's pay for bills. Sure. Yeah, no, I didn't pay bills, you know. I relied on on generous girlfriends and, <laughs> and you know, my parents sending me money sometimes and I worked as a temp guy when I first came here. And, you know, it's not, we're not talking about an economically based decision here. It has nothing to do with that. Like, I, I always kind of, I think, thought that if I could develop, because I had something personal, I could tell, and I, and I thought it was something that wasn't so um, abstract, although it's plenty abstract, way too abstract for its own good, but not so abstract that it would be completely without appeal. I thought maybe it would have some kind of appeal on some level to someone. And so I just, I kind of had faith that eventually I'm going to be, it's not, I'm not going to be a pop star at all, but maybe I'll be able to survive if I just kind of commit to it. And that ended up happening, you know, but it took a long time. And, and during that middle period, like, cause once you commit to being a leader, you stop getting called for being a side man. At least I did. That's some friends of mine too. It's kind of a common phenomenon. Yeah. And, um, and but here you are, the leader of what you know, and nobody knows what what the hell you're doing or what that music is or what to call it or or you know what what its place in the world is, if any. And so yeah, it was uh, it wasn't you know it wasn't a business decision at all. It was just like, what's it going to take for me to be happy here? And then once you figure that out, then it's about how can I make money at this? You know, that's I think that's the that's the 
You know, that's one of the places where art and commerce meet. It's like artists first kind of figure out what they want to make, and then they figure out if they want to make a living at that, they figure out how to sell that thing, which is different from making art to sell. Mm-hmm. It's just a different a thing. And that's, that's you know, yeah. look, that's cool too, whatever. You know, it's just I knew that wasn't how I was going to do it. I think it's I think it's really it's been helpful for me to to sort of suspend judgment about any of this thing. We're really just talking about like what's going to make you happy. You know, you what's going to make you happy playing the guitar, you know, like what what's the vibe? You know, and then hopefully you can figure out how to survive doing that, you know. And if not, you do something else, I guess, or something. I don't know. But uh but really it's not it's not like this is better than that or, or any of that because, you know, there's nothing better than just going down and hearing a, like a great blues player play in some bar somewhere. You know what I mean? Like that's as good as anything. It doesn't matter whether every single lick came from the various kings before, you sure. know, as long as yeah. it sounds good. It's done with, yeah, with That's it. Yeah. It's always amazing how, um, I'm skipping around, but how... Yeah. You pull things off in New York, man. Like um, I know, and because it's impossible, right? Your music. I'm. I'm always. I, I'm always amazed. I go to 55 Bar. It's always great, and I go. God, I wonder if they rehearse this. Or how they do this? Like <laughs> we I were wondering tell it's if a we rehearse sometimes, it too. but it's sure. And, you know, and and the caliber of musicians you have that play with you. I don't. I'm sure you know this by now, but like your gig is looked at as sort of a rite of passage in New York. Almost. I mean, people come to New York to want to play. You know, I've heard that about a lot of drummers and things. And you know, it's a good drummer gig. I'm proud of that part. Um, you know, Jeremy Stacy is a friend of yeah, mine, and uh-huh. we've worked together on sure. other projects. And I, I was here the first night he played with you. Oh yeah. And he was sweating like crazy. <laughs> He just flew in, and and I said, "Oh man, I came to check you out with Wayne." He goes, "Oh, I don't even know. There's no rehearsal, and Wayne didn't really tell me anything." And I'm really nervous, and I'm like, "Wow, you're that. nervous," but you know, he did great. You yeah, know, he did. But, but I was like, "How can they do this?" Wow, I'm just—it's amazing to me how it all works. Yeah, I know. know. And nothing about New York really makes sense. I mean, it's just—I <laughs> remember when I first came here, it was just I couldn't imagine how it was going to work. You know, like. All the money that's required, oh, and the, the logistics and the hard stuff. And it's just, it's like, how is this even possible? You know, but somehow here I am 30 years later, still, you know, we got a roof up over our head here, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Your intention was to kind of be a jazz cat here, or you just wanted to get out of... Uh, I just, yeah, you know, I, I just, I wanted to play with famous guys and tour the world. Really, that's what I wanted, famous people, I should say, and tour the world. You couldn't do it from Boston. You certainly couldn't do it from Corvallis, Oregon. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to go where the music is. Mm-hmm. That's what I tell anybody, you know, from Montana or whatever, that are just, should I come there? You know, it's like, go where the music is. Whatever your music is, you got to go where it's being made, you know. And this is where anything creative was happening. This was the center. Talk. I moved here in '87, and um, you know, L.A. was there's a ton of music there, but not not much creative stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I mean, if I hadn't gone to Berkeley, if I just kind of if I hadn't gone to college, if I just gotten out of high school and gone down to L.A. and joined a rock band, which sometimes I I kind of wish I'd done. My life would have been different musically, I'm sure. I mean, I don't know what would have happened. But once I moved east and kind of became fascinated with creative music, uh, some of it, some of which was jazz, some of which wasn't, you know, um, and I started meeting people that were making creative music here and, and realizing that there might be a place for me in, in groups like that, groups that had, didn't have such rigid ideas about what the guitar was supposed to sound like. You know, like most of us are on our sideman gigs, the guitar is supposed to do something. You know, that, that's expected. Right, right. Every couple of tunes, you're supposed to like trot forward and play a rock and roll solo <laughs> for the kids, and then go back and shut the fuck up for another two or three songs. You know, and that's kind of like what it is for guitar on most sideman gigs. Um, and my thing was just less and less fitting into that. You know, that uh, job description. I mean for me to be happy. Were you happy playing with Steely Dan? Yeah, it was a fun job. I mean, that, you know... Hey, did you learn all the, um, you know, that some of those solos are signature? I didn't. And yeah, I didn't, because the reason they hired me was to not do that. Wow, that's interesting. That's why they wanted it's really me. I mean, I could, to me, it was like, really? Me? I don't do that stuff, you know? Oh, I thought it was great when you were with Hawaii. I remember but it, that. No, it had, just... it, had its, it had its moments. But, uh, but yeah, the, the whole idea was that they didn't want that. I mean, they kind of, after me, they kind of went back to kind of splitting the difference on that, on that one. But, um, but yeah, they, they didn't even want me to play the same rhythm parts. You know, they really wanted me to kind of do a ground-up thing. And, and so that's what I tried to do, you know, with, with all due respect to everything. And if there was something that just had to be played, I probably yeah. played it. But, but yeah, it was interesting. But it was a lot of fun. I mean, I learned a, I learned a lot. The main thing I learned on that one was, was I'm sure I've said this endlessly, but um, this idea of placement, rhythmic placement. Like, that was the first time I'd ever played in a band that had such profoundly centered rhythmic placement it's completely different from a jazz placement it's really classic r&b center of the beat stuff and and i didn't it was odd like i think when i was in the band i never really centered on that too well and it wasn't until some years later that i um that i managed to actually locate the center of the beat as a location and then play from there and uh, it took a long time to figure that out. Um, you mean the rhythm playing or just a general like delivery of parts? Where the notes just... are put. 
Mm-hmm. Like, Not the ideas so much. On like, top of the beat or laid back. Exactly. And they're kind of in the center. Right? <laughs> Dead center. See, I hear New York drummers like that. Like maybe being from New Orleans, it's everything I play and stuff I grew up listening to is always a little bit on the back end. Mm-hmm. And playing up here and, and working with drummers, like guys, they, they don't rush. It's like you said, it's right on the beat. It's the precision. Some guys. Yeah, that's true. Although, and, you know, Steely Dan's drummer for the last however many years, Keith Carlock, is yeah. like famously behind yeah. uh, snare, you know. Yeah. And that's, they, that's what they like. In yeah. fact, when, when they made demos, when Fagan made, Donald Fagan made demos, he would, he would always lag the snare drum back a precise number of clicks uh, in Pro Tools to give it that thing. So yeah, that's that has to be there for that kind of R and B thing maybe to happen in the way it needs to to have the bounce or whatever. Mm-hmm. But in general, their their stuff was not rushed and not draggy. You know, it was centered. And and my my interest after kind of being exposed to that and seeing like these kind of R and B based rhythm sections playing that seemingly effortlessly while I'm like struggling not to rush. Um, I started imagining what that kind of placement would do for my music, which is rhythmically very different from theirs and R&B, obviously, but just the the element of the placement of it, like to have my thing be that centered, if that would help me, if it would help. And in fact, it did. It like created this clarity of rhythm because that's what it does. Like that's, that's the clearest way to articulate what a rhythm is, is to center it. Like that's the the most accurate telling of a rhythm that you can give a, a another musician or the audience, you know. It's, and and with my stuff, which tends to be a little obscure rhythmically, like it's not it's not all obvious what's happening. It really helps if at least it's centered, so that the intent of it can be clearly received by the other musicians initially. But then, you know, even subliminally by by the audience, even though they don't know from that and don't care about it, you mm-hmm. know. But to to achieve some kind of clarity, I found it really. And plus, everything's just way funkier that way. Mm-hmm. And that's sure. the essence. Of, that's the groove. That's that's what it is. I mean, underneath everything. that period of reinventing yourself that the steely first of all that happened later steely that happened happened later but billy cobham was that before laney you were playing with laney Uh, it was sort of during actually laney was the first thing i did in new york other than carla blay band which is what i got when i first came down here i auditioned Mm. for that and got that and then through that band which was the sextet at the time i subbed for hiram bullock on that band um did you just come to New York cold? Like you totally. Wow. Yeah. It took a year. It took a year of nothing before something started falling into place. But um, but it was after I met uh, Laney. And I'd known Mike in Boston, but I met Laney uh, through that 
gig. They came to see it, and she was doing something that I got involved with her. And that was really my first kind of New York, uh, you know, local 55 bar. We started playing there. Or she was already playing there. And uh, and that that's where I really met everybody, through that gig. Because she, she just had all the bass players and drummers in town playing with her. So that was great. It was a good experience for me. Yeah. Yeah. There's a clip of you guys in Germany that's yeah, you're killing on that too. I think oh, it's yeah? Phoenix. Actually. Oh yeah. Yeah, it's it's a from doing my post bop thing, long lines, sixteen. There were notes. long lines. There's some long lines. Yeah. They're slamming, man. Oh I good. Mean, it's really it's really nice. Great. I think Zach Danziger's playing. Probably. Maybe. That's how I met the my first band came out of Laney's bands. Like uh, Zach and Lincoln both played with her, so that's how I met them and became friendly enough to ask them to rehearse for no money. <laughs> You know, got to play with your friends. Thanks, everybody. I just want to introduce these guys, these incredible musicians uh, that I've been playing with for about a year now. things I love that you do that is like a signature thing of yours is um, the tempo changes so mm-hmm. it's almost a metric modulation thing but but I think you just give cues is that it like yeah up down kind of yeah and mm-hmm. then it's so effective when it kicks in the audience you can just hear everybody I just it's just it's a thing you know I mean it's I mean it's, where did you get that idea from I got it from a record that I made actually called Greenwich Greenwich Me oh, sure yeah. um, which was a bunch of of live edits spliced together. Some of them having absolutely nothing to do mathematically with tempo-wise with what was before or after it. So I just did it like in a way that sounded cool to me. Uh, it, that sounded like almost like a random drop, random DJ drop. Oh. And um, and then I wanted to imitate that live. So so that's what we did you know we and to do that i mean you know meanwhile if you look at the history of it i mean james brown was doing stuff like that mm-hmm. prince did it like they had their way of doing it it's it's an r&b thing to do i guess and probably other musics too but in our case like the whole the whole goal is to have it not sound like met, metric modulation to have it not sound mathy but to have it sound kind of random and surprising yeah. and what? What, what it's was always that? Surprising. It doesn't sound, you know, cerebral at all. I mean, well, that's the goal. Yeah. You know, yeah, that's it doesn't the goal. Sound like that. I don't, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that, but it's just I didn't want to create that effect. Sure. It's already too cerebral. The music's already too heady for its own good. So I'm always looking for ways to kind of like drag it down into the dirt. And that was so that it's earthy enough so that people can, can dig it, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's one of the things that, and also, it's just like this relentless uh, mission to try to figure out how to not make the music boring, which it can be just instantly, so fast. It can get so boring to listen to people jamming on a groove. You know, that can really, it's fun for us, you know, but to get people to come and to have the consistency happen of it being like, yeah, it's different all the time and this change and that was a wake up call and all that stuff. You know, it's like looking for things and ways in the music to provide that for the audience, so so uh, they don't just go to sleep. 
Yeah, well, you do that really well, man. I mean, I, <laughs> sometimes, I the, sometimes I love the where you know you tell the bass player to lay out, and then you'll just be playing with the drummer, and and you know, it's or, the same exact idea. It's like how can we change? Like whatever is happening, no matter how badass it is, has to change, or, or yeah. it's going to become boring. Yeah. But it doesn't matter what it is. Sure. So like, and since it's not like some people write in those kinds of changes into the tune, it's composed. It's part of the show. Like in this tune, we're going to go this way with the thing. And in this tune, we're going to go that way. And on this one, it's going to acoustic guitar feature. And on this one, it's going to be this kind of lighting. Like that's what the show thing does is it creates a contour. So it's not just one thing. Mm -hmm. Because no matter how good it is, it's going to get dull. So with us, there is no show. The music is the show. And it's also, by the way, not written. <laughs> so it's like we have to be able to improvise stuff that creates difference within the music. And that thing you just mentioned, like cueing people in and out, that's another thing, like the tempo changes, that does that. It's not as if I have, believe me, like if I cue, sometimes I'll just say, I got it. Mm -hmm. You know, like both of them will go yeah. out. Yeah, it's yeah. not as if I have anything planned at that point. <laughs> it's, I have nothing planned. It's just like, this is getting boring. Let me, let's get these guys out of here. I'll do something. And then I'll cue them back in, and maybe where, where we land that time will be more interesting than it was. It's that kind of thing. Um, but, yeah. You know. Yeah, I mean, because as a listener, and I think I have fairly good ears, and I can discern from no, you things do. that are worked out. And I, I mean, it's just, it's enjoyable. I mean, I'm glad. I, I, I try to disconnect myself from guitars. You know, I just, That's cool. I can hear the whole thing, and... The way you're turning things on and off, you know, telling the drummer way out this or that. I mean, it's it's just enjoyable. That's why I was and not just me. I mean, everybody digs it. That's cool. I love the the stuff you start with the delay sometimes, and just you by yourself. Mm -hmm. and it comes in, you know. Just, I just feel like that's cheating in a way. Why is that? You know, because it's a delay pedal. It's like, hey man, play. You want to play solo? Play solo. But baby. you do that without the delay. No, too, I do. Man. I do sometimes, but it's you know that's. Well, tell that to the edge, and you wouldn't have had you too, probably. No. Yeah, that's true. That's kind of part of it. It's no, like I do. You know, the right delay arm. thing is, is super fun. You know, I always, but I just, I just, you know, sometimes I do feel like you can you can rely too much on stuff like that. Well, it's not like it's a super fancy delay. I've, I've never seen anybody <laughs> squeeze so much out of that. What is it? A DD three boss? Yeah, it's DD three. I, I can't believe how many. And you, there's no tap tempo, no, so you're no. just doing it all manually. Yeah. And you know so I, was, I was talking about this with my wife the other day. Sometimes, because she's a musician too, and she she also is a little bit into the pedals. And it's like, we were saying, like, sometimes it doesn't, if, especially if it's not tap, if, if you're just winging it and hoping it works out. Like, half the time it just won't behave. It just won't <laughs> work, you know? And, and like, I, I sort of persist for a little while, but at some point I just write it off. I say, look, it's just not happening today, you know? It's got its own, it's off, it's on vacation today. That's and the it. ring modulator is super hip. That's mm -hmm. kind of your thing, too, now. I mean, if anybody else does it, I guess McLaughlin did it, but not in the he way did. that you well, did. Was it, did I he mean, do he it, or did, did uh, Jan Hammer used it? Well, I know Jan Hammer used maybe it. Maybe he used it, but yeah. it's not in the way you're doing it. I mean, it's super hip. It's just That's cool. And now it's like your thing. Like to me, if somebody else did it, it'd be, oh, it's, yeah, it sounds like <laughs> <rank>. <laughs> Well, despite that, the the you know Mooger Fuger companies have not been chasing me down for any endorsement really? uh, opportunities. Well, maybe, so. I don't know. Maybe somebody that knows them will hear this. Or uh, but. That's cool. I'm good.
try to play something? Yeah, what do you want to play?
to teach in Atlanta yeah I know Bill yeah Yeah. and Bill had come to New York and I was like wow you're going to New York you know and uh and he goes yeah I'm taking a lesson with Wayne Krantz and we all had oh wow we all had the yeah Yeah. he took a lesson and this is a pretty funny story so I mean I'm talking this was like 1992 or 93 Bill came came back with this cassette you know Mm -hmm. this is my lesson with Wayne (laughs) please can I get a copy please please so he made it I I had it for a while, and I remember you were, and we could talk about this after, but part of the lesson was you talking about how you isolate, like, Dorian to, like, this position and force yourself oh, just yeah. to play Oh, yeah, that's that the position. four fret exercise. That's the foundation of my book right oh, is there. That, okay, yeah. we can talk about it in a minute. Great. And so Bill had this this tape, and, and, um, and, and I asked Bill a few years ago, I said, man, you still have that lesson, Wayne Krantz? I'd love to hear it. And he goes, I can't find it. I don't know what happened to it. Well, guess what? I found it on a cassette. Oh, wow. About two years ago. That's and true. I dumped it over into uh, Pro Tools and edited, you know, and sent him a copy of it. And it's really great. And That's it's cool. you talking about everything we're just talking about. You you were talking about shedding this and that. Uh-huh. And, and um, yeah. I remember Bill said, man, Wayne's apartment, you could sit on the edge of the bed and take your guitar and touch the wall <laughs> that was thompson street yeah i lived there for it's 10 like, years well this is like half of no, a, it was probably the size of this room the entire apartment probably wow. it wasn't configured in the same way but yeah it was it was super i mean i, I was i was traveling a lot then so it kind of worked and i wasn't married or anything so yeah. it sort of worked and I remember on the cassette, you can hear him. You can hear you say, uh, "We can't play too loud here, so let me turn it down a little bit." <laughs> oh wow! I'm surprised there was even an amp there involved. Was an amp. Huh? There was an amp. That's surprising. Yeah, but anyway, but yeah. So, um, so maybe that's a good segue into that four fretter because I, I remember practicing that off of that cassette. You know, I yeah, I was just looking for ways to get into this. Uh, you know, because I. I think because I went to Berkeley, and also because when I was going to Berkeley, my my heroes at the time were jazz guys. I kind of shed my the rock thing that got me there from the West Coast, where I was from, and um, and sort of became fascinated with the jazz guys. And because I was drawn by the complexity of it, like that fascinated me, you know. And um, I mean, not that I come from anything like that or that I like standards. I don't. I happen not to. I happen not to enjoy those songs. But um, but I was just fascinated by, like, how is this even possible? You know, how do people do it? Um, so, like, through that, I, I got this idea in my head that I should know my scales and chords. You know, like, I should know the theory stuff on the guitar, which by itself is, like, totally unnecessary i mean it's just a decision somebody makes most of my favorite players probably have no idea what that stuff is mm-hmm. you know seriously doubt whether hendrix knew what a dorian scale was i mean he knew the sound of it sound, but he yeah, didn't know it was called that right. and he hardly ever played it um but i just kind of got it in my head that it was important if i wanted to be good to do my homework with that stuff uh, so that's that's a decision, like to to take that on. Like not everybody has to make that, and there's all kinds of different viewpoints about whether you should make it and all that stuff. But 
because of my experience and you know who I was listening to and where I was at at the time, I thought it was important. But I also was kind of getting in touch with this idea that I wanted to be an improviser and in, and not I don't mean just a soloist like I don't mean taking a solo that's based on licks and patterns and shapes and stuff, but like like most solos are. Mm-hmm. most blues, most rock, a lot of jazz. Um, but actually being able to be spontaneously creative, but without forsaking like the scales and chord thing, you know, like somehow figuring out how to put those together because the scale and chord thing is taught as pattern. It's taught as shapes. It's taught as position. It's taught as learn the scale here, playing in order, play it in order, learn the scale there, play it in order, learn the modes of that, play them in order, learn the inversions of the chords. It's very pattern-based. And and I was just of a mind that these patterns are just getting in my way. I mean, first of all, I can't use it musically on the gig. I can't use any of the stuff that, I'm, that I've been practicing for years on the gig. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I can sit and practice Phrygian for five hours in position up and down the guitar, but if I go and try to make music of that, I would fall flat on my yeah. face. Yeah. And so I was just trying to figure out, like, how can I figure out how to practice that stuff, feel like I was doing my homework, being my, you know, a responsible little guitar player, uh, but also in some way that was actually going to be able to be useful if I wanted to actually avail myself of that stuff as music. And so that led me to this thing you're talking about, which um, is more like an exercise to make me better, make anybody better, at rather than uh, knowing the pattern for a Phrygian scale, for example, having that muscle memory, finger memory pattern down so you can whip it out fast. Right. To be able to access that thing uh, more spontaneously on the guitar, which requires not knowing it as a pattern, but knowing how the scale is made, knowing the notes that are in it, knowing how they relate to the root, and being able to basically find those. Like what's the what's one flat, two flat, three, four, five, flat six, flat seven for that scale? So if it's an E flat, you know, like I don't I don't know what I'm doing here, but for example, like say my hand is here, you mm-hmm. know, and I and I'm and I want to make an E flat Phrygian sound. Like mm-hmm. Unless I know it as a pattern, which might be something like that, right? Knowing it as like that kind of, right. knowing it as a shape. Right. If my hand's here, I don't know the shape for it. But say I want to play the sound of it. Like to do that, I, I sort of have to be able to find the notes of it. Like... right now there's the fifth here's flat two one flat seven flat six one five flat three five four flat three i want to play some chords from it so i know i need one in flat seven and flat three and flat two right there's a little three note phrygian chord that i just found a cluster kind of yeah that is I call that harmonic playing. Like, I'm still improvising. I don't know this shape. I don't know this as a chord. 
I'm just looking for notes that are in the thing right. so that I can create the sound of that scale in that key musically, right? right? So to do that, to get access to the guitar like that, and not just for that scale, but the 2048 other scales that are available. Like that's the other thing that was bugging me at the time. Why should I just satisfy myself? If I'm going to do this, why just do the 15 or 16 scales that Berkeley told me I needed to know? And actually, coincidentally and respectfully, do cover most of the chords that we ever run into. Right. But still, there's other stuff out there, you know. So I was just, I was just trying to kind of like make some kind of sense about how can I practice this stuff so that I can play Phrygian if I want. I mean, not that I ever want to, honestly, but say I did. Um, I can creatively. I can in a way, like with the baddest groove, you know, I just the, the yeah, I'm yeah. just playing notes from the scale, but I, I'm playing music with those mm -hmm. notes, which I wouldn't be able to do if the only way that I could play chords, for example, that were part of that, were, were shapes that I knew, yeah. and inversions of those shapes. Like, that wouldn't let me mix up the melody and the harmony like sure. that, or it wouldn't let me be spontaneous with it. I could kind of arrange stuff that I know spontaneously which is how good lick players do it um which is fine i mean there's absolutely nothing in the world wrong with that some yeah. of my favorite stuff some of all of yeah, our yeah. favorite stuff but if you do want to improvise at least the, like in the way i'm defining it here which is basically spontaneously generating stuff which is what you hear me doing down there uh and the guys um then it required a different system of learning the theory on the guitar so that's what that exercise right. is it's just a different way to do it that doesn't depend like there's no memory required mm -hmm. zero there's zero i mean you have to know you have to know how to play some intervals on the guitar i guess i mean you sort of have to know what a minor third looks like on the mm -hmm. guitar that's very helpful i use that all the time but um but i don't have to remember any chords or lines or licks or anything you know if i don't want to mm -hmm. and usually i don't and that's what your, your book... Uh, that's what the book is. OS yeah, is. which I just rewrote, by the way. It's coming out just now. Second edition of that book. 
So it's just got a bunch of additional stuff in there. Yeah, I'll put a link up to that. Great. In this I'd appreciate that. But yeah, that's what that is. And I and that the time that Bill would have done that, that's right around the period where really that whole thing became like I really figured it out how I was going to do it. And so I started, I started teaching that stuff. And, um, and I did that. I really practiced that way pretty exclusively for a long time, many years. You want to talk about your new record you were telling me you were writing for? Yeah, yeah. Actually, I started recording, actually. Um, it's, going to, it's going to be a layered thing. It's not live. None of it's live. Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I got sidetracked with this revision on this book, this rewrite I just did. I just finished it a couple days ago. How much more different is it's, it than the It's way version? different. It, oh, it, really? It, uh, yeah, it, I mean, it has all the stuff that the first book has that, that matters. Um, but it, but it ended up, yeah, I, I was just going to like add a chapter just to update it from, from what everything that had happened for the last 15 years. And, uh, and it just ended up being like a lot more involved in that. So that, that took some time actually to get that done. But now that it's done, um, I have all the bass tracks for the record. Um, I, I'm going to, I'm going to do, uh, I'm going to do some kind of rhythm guitar stuff next, I think, and then add some other cats. And then, you know, it's it's all composed right now. It's it's all there's no there's not maybe a few solos here and there, but not not many. Um, it's mostly composed stuff, and then I'm going to listen to that and then see how it needs to be balanced in terms of you know so it doesn't sound like too too dry. I'm kind of counting on on drums to provide drums and percussion maybe to provide a lot of of juice, you know, to the composed stuff. But but if that's not enough, then I'll I'll do some other stuff too. But yeah, that's that's kind of now coming into my my field of vision front and center. Nice. Yeah, not the books are. Uh, is it man, just sort of open ended whenever you get it done? Of course so. it is. It's like all my records. <laughs> I mean nobody, you know, there's no machine. I'm not part of a machine of any yeah. kind. So there's there are no demands made. Which is great in one way. I mean creatively it's great. Um but you know, some you know some people, the people that think that nothing can get finished without a deadline. I mean, I sort of I sort of am okay at at initiating my own deadlines, you know. Yeah. But um. Yeah, I, I don't. I'm not sure. No, well, hopefully, whatever. hopefully, we'll hopefully this it. year. Yeah, you know, I hope. That's good. There's I'll still hope. a lot left to the year. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I used to like getting your, um, I, I've downloaded all of your, um, the MP3 lessons that you oh, used thanks. to post years ago. Mm -hmm. I still listen to those sometimes and, it, and it's really inspiring because it's just you practicing and it's like mm -hmm. you with the tape recorder, yeah. your, your right. kitchen table, <laughs> yeah, whatever right. it was, and, and the way you would practice. And one of the things I, I took away from that was, uh, I mean, you talked a lot about rhythm and playing with a metronome and different ways of using it. 
But I remember one too where you would just string together unrelated uh, chords uh-huh. and then improvise over that. Okay. Or you would improvise over the chords with no changes. Right. And then play the solo back. That's and right. And then play the changes yeah. over the solo. The first of those two, like where you're just improvising over random chords, if they are really random, then, then it's an ear exercise. That's yeah. what that's for. But if you're soloing over changes that without a rhythm track, then it becomes like a theory exercise. Uh, yeah. Yeah. But it's an interesting way to practice because I, I'm guilty. Well, not guilty, but I mean, you know, playing over standards because I don't know what else to practice sometimes over it gets you want something a little challenging but sure. it's not the most original thing like you need another version of well, Stella look, you know and, look here, here's what I think about that man like there's certainly nothing in the world wrong with practicing Stella nothing but if it's not making you happy yeah if, if you're if you're you know if you're feeling what you're saying now which is like gee I kind of wish there was something else like that's the point where maybe there should be something else you know like it's not because the world says you're supposed to do this or you're not supposed to or Django did it so you have to or any of that I, I, I believe it's just what is getting us off here you know what are we digging here and if it if your desire is to have some more um, challenging harmony to, to work on as a, as a soloist then yeah then and but and you're getting tired of playing stella by starlight for whatever reason whether it's you're just tired of it or you don't think it fits with you anymore or whatever it is then it's it's two options it's like either find other songs that have complicated stuff in it that aren't stella or write some songs that have complicated harmony in them which i think is a nice solution to the problem because mm-hmm. then it then it creates music mm-hmm. and and that's good. It's good for you to write. That's a good thing for you to do in this world. You know, make something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, so, and it could be with the same kind of chords, even. You know, you could use that same kind of jazz harmony if you wanted to, with mm-hmm. minor two fives and sub fives and all that right. stuff. You know, um, needless to say, none of that is happening in pop music right now. So, like pop music now, large. I mean, I. I feel somewhat of an authority to say this because I have a 14-year-old daughter who listens exclusively to that music, so I hear it. And it's very, very limited harmonically. Very, very. It's very, very sophisticated rhythmically because of production. It's like whoever, you know, producing a lot of these tracks, they, they know what they're doing rhythmically. But harmonically, there's not much there. Uh, and also melodically, there's not much there. It's mostly riff-oriented or, or just rhythmic. It's rap-based or, or like R&B riff-based stuff with minimal harmony. Um, so you can't really get much from that stuff right now in terms of like what kind of work on that's, that's not Stella. Um, so that makes me think, you know, you know, you'd either go back to whatever, 70s, 60s, or write some stuff. And that random chord thing is good for that because it's just, you know, like there's different, there's an infinite number of ways to do it. But one way you could do it is just make a tape of yourself playing some, with a metronome, just, you know, on the first bar of every four bars or four four beats, Mm -hmm. on on beat one of each bar, uh, play a different chord. It doesn't matter what it is. And then let it hang for a day and then go back and try to blow over it. You know, like that's a good ear exercise. Yeah, yeah. 
But again, you know, it depends what your goal is. You know, it's like, do you, is your goal to sound impressive on standards? Like, if that's your goal, you've got to play standards. You've got to practice standards. Like, that's what I mean. When I first moved here, I realized that I was going to suspend that goal. Even though I loved it. I loved hearing people doing it. Uh, I, I was reasonably okay at doing it myself, you know. But I really realized at that moment that I don't love it enough to really continue doing it, so I put it away. Now you have guys who like they don't really do gigs; they just post things to YouTube. Mm -hmm. And you don't dig it? Maybe the, no. I'm not saying I don't dig it. I'm just wondering where it's headed. Is that the new audience? Is that is that the new gig now? Like YouTube? Like you know, there are guys that maybe they're reaching more people than they would if they could get a gig at you know Bitter End or something like that. I don't know, but. Some of these guys have never done gigs before, ever. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, this isn't a knock on anybody. I'm just wondering, like, where are we headed? Yeah. Because I notice, like, a lot of cats kind of sound the same, too, now. The, you know, it's... You think because of that? I think so. Yeah? I think so, because there's no mystery anymore. You know, back when I had, when I, first time I heard you or any other guitar player that I looked up to and listened to, there was a mystery, like, I had to figure out. Uh-huh. Yeah, you didn't know what kind of guitar you played or sure. what you were using, or it was, sure. it was part of the appeal. And yeah. that search helped you develop. You like it was. Now it's just like, man, it's instantaneous. I mean, that's true. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely different. I mean, I I, I have a lot of faith in performance. Like, I really think there's a reason why it still happens. You know, I think it's built into we're we're hardwired with that one. I think human beings need to perform and they need to witness performance and I think that's part of what we are period and I don't think anything can change that in the same way it doesn't change our desire to have you know families and everything and friends and all the other stuff we that's you know essential um, so I kind of have faith faith in it to the point where I don't feel like it's in danger from from a technology uh, you know that said um, you know, I, I don't think it hurts anybody that I haven't actually seen these guys you're talking about. The only thing I see on YouTube is like when I need inspiration, I go to classic people, you yeah. know, dead yeah. people mostly. <laughs> um, but, uh, the, the main thing I, I, I relate to with what you're saying is like the, the mystery thing. It's like the whole, even doing this podcast, you know, here I am like 
like laying it all out, you know, and Miles didn't do that, you know, it's like the, the cats in the old days that used to inspire me. I mean, Hendrix actually gave a lot of interviews, it's true. And he probably would have done podcasts if he'd been asked to. Well, I haven't found a lot of... I'm a podcast fan. I listen to a few different ones. And I, for years, I look anything with you on it. I haven't found... Well, there haven't... No, that's true. There haven't been a lot. I did one recently for, like, these I, English cats. And I heard it. And I was wondering... That's why I was a little hesitant to ask you initially. I was like, well, I don't know if Wayne's into that. No, it's not that I've said no. It's that I haven't been asked. Well, that's amazing. I mean, really. Uh, I'm going to do an, there's another, some, somebody asked me to do, I don't know, I can't remember the name of it, but some, some, uh, one of those things, podcasts I'm going to do in August. But, but, uh, but in a way, you know, and the, the label that I work with has constantly encouraged me to be more engaged with social media and all this stuff. And, and he, and he kind of, you know, he said something the other day that, that kind of (laughs) made sense really saying, look. If you had a if you had a choice between seeing a picture of Ringo Starr playing the drums or seeing a video of him brushing his teeth, which one would you pick? And I said, actually probably the video if I had to choose one. He said, Yeah, because you've seen a picture of him playing the drums like countless times, but you've never seen a video of him brushing his teeth. <laughs> and we were laughing about that and I was sort of thinking about it. It's like there goes the mystery, you know. <laughs> it's like that's how Ringo brushes his teeth. Wow. Well, now I know. You know. <laughs> Next, I mean, the problem with that is you got to keep making videos we've never you seen, feed right? The monster. Yeah, right. Feed the monster. But uh, well, yeah. when I had Daryl Hall on, I mean, I, I work with Daryl all the time, and I, it took me forever before he he said from day one, he's like. Well, I didn't know you had a podcast. I, I'll be on it. I was like, are you kidding me? You, you want to be on it? Because well, you never asked me. And I go, yeah. well, I mean, you said no to Tom Brokaw. Like, <laughs> you think you're, you know, my little shitty podcast. He's like, I want to do it. Well, that was a year it took me to, to get, get him. To do it. And yeah. then he was like, well, let's, maybe tomorrow we can do it <laughs> right. when we're done with it. Yeah. So one day I said, that's it, man. The shit's set up. And we were in a studio. That's it. And he just talked and talked and talked. And, you yeah. know, natural. I've done a million interviews. Sure. But he won't listen to anything. Uh-huh. And all these people would email me and his manager. Wow, it's a great interview with Daryl. It's candid. And, and uh I said, Daryl, did you check it out? He said, I don't listen to anything. I've never listened to anything. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. That's, I mean, that's actually kind of how I am, I have to say. Mm-hmm. Pretty much. I, I, right now, somebody's asked me this the other day, because, you know, people shoot video at 55, and, um, and I haven't seen it. And they asked about that. And, and like, I'm in a place now where I, I enjoy playing so much, and I... I, uh, I'm connected to it in the way that I'd like to be. I mean, at least I'm on the road to being connected to it in the way I'd like to be, the music, um, more so than ever. And I sort of don't want to interfere with that feeling right now by judging it, because I know as soon as I look at it, the next I, that's, that's the next... Kind of thing. Well, it's just judgment comes into it at that point, and I don't want to interfere right now like like to me right now it's more important that i'm connected in the right way than whether it sounds good it's just like it hit that point like that is my priority right now at some point i'm going to be ready to tweak the way it sounds once this connection thing is is established like beyond question 
then maybe I'll go back and start tweaking it and saying, oh, that's what that sounds like? Fuck that. I'm not, not going to do that again. I'm going to do this instead. Or that's what it looks like when I do that? Mm-hmm. Oh, wow, it's not cool, you know? And I, I just don't want to interfere with the vibe right now by that. Sure. Yeah, but, uh, but, you know, I'll listen to your podcast. I'll listen to this. Hell well, yeah. You know what? I, I put in Especially little, after it's edited. <laughs> I put in little edits and I'll put like little excerpts from some of your songs. Ah, whatever. And flow in want. and out, you know. Yeah. As long as I cool. don't get sued, I'll do it. I'm interested when, you know, your first Wayne Krantz solo gigs. Were you terrified? Like, or, or were you always kind of feeling comfortable? Like, you know, being um, in a comfortable spot, like. Because I was telling you at 55 Bar, I'm asking it sort of a selfish question because, you know, a couple of solo gigs I've done, yeah. I did a couple of Bitter End and a uh-huh. couple of things. Man, I was terrified. Really? And they went well. Yeah, decent decent turnout. Yeah. And it was okay and it's it cool. sounded good. And, yeah. But man. And it, and it didn't lessen uh, the more you did? Oh, I only did two. Oh, okay. And well, then, you know, no. you can put me on stage backing up pretty much anyway. I'm sure. okay. Uh-huh. But... My own what thing? part of it is the scariest thing? Like, what's the most terrifying part of it? What Everything element? internally, in my head, like what you're saying, like, oh, that's probably not cool. I don't know. I'm looking at this guy. Oh, so you're judging it. Like it. I'm constantly judging While you're playing. While I'm playing. So you're disconnecting. And I'm worried about, you know, the, the technical things and the, sure. the you know, Man, that's show up. Which, the, yeah, what you're talking about right now transcends whether it's your gig or somebody else's. Like, I, I believe, my opinion is this, that... That really what you're talking about is your ability to connect with the music if it's your thing. It's really you're not talking so much about I'm, a, I'm paranoid about or afraid of doing my own thing. It's when you do it, are you still able to connect to the music in the way that apparently you are playing on other people's gigs? Because you're not talking about worrying about those situations no. at all. So to me, that's the, found, that's the fundamental issue of, that we all face all the time. It's it's about that. It's like, am I going to be able to connect in a way that's going to make this sound, that's going to make, forget about it even sounding good, that's going to make this experience as good as it can be for me and for the audience. Because that only comes when we're most connected. Like every bit of lack of connection, that, as you're describing, um, you know, worrying about the gear, the sound, uh, am I to this, am I to that? Like those kinds of thoughts cannot happen while music is happening in you. Like you have to stand apart from the music for the judgment. That's the thing I was talking about before. It's like the judgment is when you say, does this, I mean, we, as musicians, we're always shifting and changing and how we play a note and what note we play to try to make it sound good. So in in some way, that does involve judgment. But there's a certain kind of judgment that's really kind of more um, instinct, a musician's instinct to to know what to play right now to make it sound good. I think judgment is maybe some kind of factor in that. Like all those kinds of thoughts can only happen, like you can't be listening and and thinking that. It, it requires that you step away from the music and when you do that you know we're still we're good players so we can still play and the gig goes on but you're compromised at that point and Mm -hmm. and there's no way that it can be as pleasurable as it might be and and those feelings are unpleasant and and um and you're left at the end of the gig thinking like wow i was too scared to really enjoy that like i want to or like i think i might be able to or whatever 
And so to me, the issue becomes how do we connect even in adverse conditions? Like even when there's more on the line or even when it's less rehearsed or there's somebody in the audience listening that we're afraid of or there's nobody there or there's too many people there or it doesn't pay enough or pays too much or whatever it is, you know. Mm-hmm. It's like how do we connect through that stuff? And because I, I just believe that that's where satisfaction is. That's where that feeling at the end of the gig like, yep, gave it 100%, did did I gave it everything I had. Like, that's beyond judgment at that point. It's like, you can't do any better right. than that. Like, there's incidentals, this happened, that happened, whatever. Well, when I watch you, I mean, I, I watch you, you know, you, you turn the amp on and you close your eyes and just go. I mean, you won't even open your eyes for, like, the whole thing. I'm trying, man. I'm trying now. I tried that last week. And that's I, my and new I'm, thing, opening my eyes. And I'm like, wow, I wonder what's going through his head. That's what I always think when I watch other musicians, because... It's like fearless. That, that's the best way I could describe what I hear. It's like fearless. Well, Taking chances. And I mean, you know exactly what's going on in my head because that's what you're listening to. You know, there isn't anything else. Mm. That's all there is. That's exactly what's going through my head, like what I'm playing. And, and, and unless I'm distracted. If I'm distracted, then God knows what's going through my head. Mm-hmm. And the experience that you're getting will not be optimal. It'll, it might still be really good, mm-hmm. but it's not going to be as good as I want it to be. And, and on some level, I believe it's not going to be as good as you want it to be, too. Like, I think, I think when you're talking about great performances, um, I, I put this on my website once because somebody was asking about, uh, about what I've been listening to or something. And I mentioned, like, a place I go to for inspiration about connection, although you can go to any great performance, any, th- any performance you think is great on YouTube uh, or on record, um, you can go to that for inspiration about, about what connection does because those are all people that are, are, are connected, I'm convinced. they figured out how to connect. And this one place that I go for inspiration sometimes for that is the Hendrix at Woodstock video. You know, you think of, and I've read about the day and everything, and the, the number of distractions that he was facing that day, like between staying up all night and being dosed and not sleeping and brand new band that was terrible, new tunes that nobody knew, half-assed audience that had already started leaving, piles of garbage, movie cameras everywhere, they're making a feature-like film out of the thing, you know. Like, everything that could have pulled him away from the music was present and right in his face, and he still managed to connect. You can see it. Mm. Like, you know, at times you can sort of see he becomes momentarily distracted, but those times do not last. He, he makes a soul connection with the music, and he, he just blasts through it. To me, that's like, I get goosebumps just thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Like, what, yeah. what level of commitment to connection that or, or however he thought of it. Like, I'm not saying he used these words at all with himself, but that's how I think about it. And, um, and there's a bunch of, there's probably a bunch of stuff like that that you could go to just as a reminder of, like, what people are capable of, you know, how they're, they're able to make something happen that's beautiful, even if there's all these things against it, you know, that could prevent it. It could interfere with it, interrupt it, you know. So that, to me, that's kind of an essential question that a musician sooner or later has to ask. Is like, how am I going to really give myself here to 100% to this thing mm. without distraction, you know.
Sounds great, man. Well, thank you, Wayne, for coming over, man. My pleasure I really entirely. Appreciate it. Um, the jackhammer stayed. Yeah, man. Silent long enough. All right, if you guys made it this far, like I said, you're a true fan, 
and thank you so much for hanging in there. I hope you got some good stuff on this. Um, I could easily break these up into probably two parts, but I'd rather have it all in one go. And um, you can listen to it as you like in sections. So again, visit me, Instagram, Shane Terrio Guitar, or Facebook, Shane Terrio Music. Hit me up with a like. Nice comment on iTunes for Riff Raff. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.